Good morning, City Church. My name is Jeremy, one of the pastors here. Glad to see you this morning. For those of you participating online, Jacob has already welcomed you, but I will welcome you once again. So welcome. Glad you're with us. I can feel your presence, really. It's with me. In the late 1800s to 1920s, this particular painting was created. Let's look at it. Let it look into you. But its provenance, its origin, wasn't for certain. Several years after it was painted, it was eventually purchased by a German-Jewish couple from Frankfurt. Their pattern was to purchase art that was generally regarded as unimportant. You see, they bought art just because they loved it. They They weren't trying to amass a great wealth of art. But generally what would happen is that they would purchase art. They would hope that its value would increase or demand would rise. And then they would sell art and make some money off of it. But sadly, in an effort to flee Germany and Nazi power, they had to sell it. It was purchased by an art dealer who then took it to New York. And then it was sold again right before the Second World War. This time, it was sold to a man by the name of William Getz. Getz was a powerful movie producer in Hollywood, and he collected art. His, his home was actually filled with all sorts of art, Picassos and, you know, name other art, Michelangelo's, things like that. And he had this, this art display in his room wherein the, the art would actually descend from the ceiling, and everyone could stare at it, and then after they were done staring, it would then retract back up into, into the ceiling. Let me take my mask off. That's so much better. <laughs> Amen. We long for that day together, don't we? The art would then retract back up into the ceiling, and then another screen would come down, and they would watch a movie. Magetz didn't particularly love this painting, so he eventually let it go, and it made its way to the heiress of Kmart. You remember Kmart, Blue Light Specials? That was a day. When she died in 1990, she willed this painting, among other paintings, to the Detroit Institute of Art. She gave it to them without restriction, which meant they could do with it whatever they wanted to do. They could keep it or they could sell it. It was clear by the lack of restriction that she, she didn't care for it and they didn't really care for it as much as the movie producer didn't care for it. They put it in storage in the basement. Worthless. Never to be seen by daylight. Or was it? Was it worthless? Now, you might be wondering at this point, if you're telling us this story, maybe it is worth something. Well, maybe it is, or maybe it is. You'll just have to wait to find out later. This morning, we're going to be taking a look at the actions of the church at Corinth that Paul's dressing in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, they, they seem like they've come upon something that they've actually deemed worthless themselves. Or at least that's the perception. That's how they were treating the thing. They, they've kind of just given up on understanding the provenance, the origin, the history of the thing that they're practicing. See, they've not only forgotten its history, but they've actually forgotten the, the transformative power that the thing brings to the present. Its significance had all but been lost. But Paul arrives on the scene trying to rescue it from the basement, prominently displaying the piece for which the provenance deems priceless. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 
17 through 34. If you don't have a Bible and you're in the room, you can get some Bibles back there in that corner. We'd love to give you one. If you're online participating and you don't have a Bible to read, uh, we have one of our pastors who is a host on the chat. Just uh, hit the request prayer button and he'll get your information. We'd love to, to mail you a Bible. You know, listen, as a small aside, you've heard us talk about participation. We, we tell people, we request that people who are watching online that you participate. See, a worship gathering is something that we participate in, especially if you're a covenant member. We want you to, to stand with us. We want you to sing with us. We want you to raise your hands. So listen, you, your soul responds to your body's posture, okay? So we, we've talked about that in, this, in the, the series on holy habits. So would you participate with us? In your room too, please participate, okay? So now, okay, thank you. Some of you say, well, that just seems weird, Jeremy. Participating, I'm sitting in my house worshiping Jesus. Well, you know, a dead man raising from the grave is pretty weird too, so. Now, in giving this instruction, I don't praise you. Since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. Indeed, it's necessary that there be factions among you so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together then, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another one gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you suppose, or do you despise rather the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I don't praise you on this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we wouldn't be judged. But, if, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home. So that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. I will give instructions about the other matters whenever I come. That's the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians 11. What I want to do this morning is set the scene for you and then give a couple implications for us as a church. So warning, this is a pointless sermon. Not that it's useless and that it does not have points. Okay? So here we go. The issue that Paul is addressing surrounds the events of the Lord's Supper. He's not necessarily taking issue with the way they've chosen to do the Lord's Supper, but how they're approaching it. It's more of how they're treating one another. He's, he essentially tells them that they might as well just not even be doing the thing. It says in verse 17, you come together for the better, not for the worse. In other words, 
What you're doing is actually making the situation worse. Your gatherings are doing more harm than good. That's a pretty sharp statement, isn't it? I mean, basically, it would be better for everyone involved if they didn't come together to worship in the first place. Can you imagine? And the thing that they must be doing must be pretty bad. Their approach isn't a matter of preference for Paul. Their approach is all wrong. So what exactly is going on? Well, we've already seen that in Corinth, the church is an absolute mess. There's a man sleeping with his stepmom. They're bringing lawsuits against one another. Sex is being abused. They're trying to figure out what to do with the delicious leftover smoked meat that's being, that's being offered to pretend gods by their neighbors and coworkers. And then Paul serves that up on the side of gender roles. Corinthians is a beautiful mess. It's beautiful because it's filled with new believers who are trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus and give him their whole lives. But if all that mess is going on, really, why should we be surprised that they're really just messing up the Lord's Supper? They're also messing up the Lord's Supper. Verse 20 through 22, Paul tells them, look, I know y'all think you're doing the Lord's Supper, but what y'all are doing is not the Lord's Supper at all. It's something entirely different. And here's part of the problem. Apparently, they weren't all arriving at the same time. That never happens here, right? No one ever arrives at the same time. Anyway. And then, Paul makes a reference in verse 22 that their actions humiliate those who have nothing. This gives us a a small picture into what is actually going on in these worship gatherings. So there were two groups of people. There were the people who were arriving early at the Lord's Supper. And then there were the people who were arriving who didn't have anything, who had nothing. Going back up to verse 21. The the people who are getting there for the early bird special and happy hour, they, they aren't waiting for the other people to arrive. They're filling themselves up with food and wine. And then when the other people get there... To get something, to get some prime rib and some Cabernet. They have nothing. They have leftovers. It's like they're eating tapas. And they've completely missed out on the prime rib. Mind you, these were full meals. It's not like what we do now. Recently, because of COVID, you, uh, we switched to these little cups that have the prepackaged wafer in them. And you, you should have gotten one when you come in today if you're a follower of Jesus. Someone called that recently a Jesus Lunchable, and I'm like, that's perfect. It's just a little snackable. It's not going to fill you at all. It's not a feast. These people were having a feast, okay? You see, the division that Paul is addressing is how the wealthy are treating the poor. Most likely, the wealthy are people who are arriving early. You know, they're business owners. They're part of the ruling class. They have a little more time on their hands, so they can afford to leave their working things Behind, Let the people who they pay to do the work come to, and so that they could come early to the Lord's Supper. The people who were poor, they, they, they were most likely working from sun up to sundown, so they couldn't get there early. So when they got there, they had nothing. And their work couldn't allow them to leave early because they would possibly lose all the income that they had. And furthermore, the churches in Corinth were most likely met in houses of the wealthy. You see, in this period of time, Christians weren't admired. Really, they've never really been admired, just just in case you're wondering. They they weren't quite being persecuted at the time, but they actually were being pushed to the margins. Unlike the church in Jerusalem, 
who met in Jewish synagogues. They see they, they met in Jewish synagogues. They could meet in larger and they could have larger gatherings. In Corinth, there were no larger gatherings because they were limited by Roman law where they could meet. So they would meet in homes for worship, homes that were owned by the wealthy. And now, listen, that's not a bad thing. This is a great opportunity for the wealthy to serve the church, serve, serve the Lord with the things that he had given them in the first place. Now, one small detail, hopefully it won't bore you too much, on architecture at the time. Meals were served in a room called the triclinium. Hopefully I didn't put the wrong uh, emphasis on the wrong syllable. That's a Latin word that both myself and my daughter, hi, sweetie, you're watching, or participating, rather, we both learned this week. See, the triclinium would be, uh, it's a, kind of a, like a three-sided table, okay? So imagine a, a, a part here and a part here, or that part's against the back. And then there would be a fourth side that was at, completely removed where servants could come in and deliver food. And they would sit down like this. They would sit down like this and eat food, look at one another, <laughs> and they would turn around, hey, ho, oh, hey. And, you know, they're just rolling around like this, eating food as they're bringing it in. You know, they're just filling themselves up. See, they could actually take a nap right after they ate. It's not really weird at all. The problem with this, with this sort of setup, is that the size of the room and the setup of the room would limit the number of people they could have in the room. So only 9 to 12 people would be allowed to eat at this table. And that's another problem. So while the wealthy arrived early, the poor not only were receiving less food and less drink because they arrived later, they were then forced to eat outside, away from where the wealthy were eating. There wasn't any room for them. The wealthy had taken all the food and seats at the table. They were being segregated because they were poor. The worship gathering had actually become a display of inequality between the haves and the have-nots. It had become an exclusive display of consumption. And Paul here is addressing injustice. And as I read and studied this this week, it... um, a sadness settled over me when I, when I was trying to understand one of these passages. And it wasn't necessarily what was taking place. It was what the people were believing about themselves. In verse 19, we have this really hard verse to understand. Paul says that the issue between the wealthy and poor were necessary so that the approved could be recognized. Like What, what does that mean? So here's what I think this means after I read a lot of commentaries on it. Paul's being sarcastic. He seems to be repeating a phrase that he's heard other Christians say. This is the phrase. Yeah, well, we got to have these differences so we can know who God is really blessed. Christians at the time thought that if they could be the ones who got there early, that they would be the ones who were blessed by God. Listen to that. Listen, that does not reflect at all the heart of God. If I could only measure up, well, then I'll be blessed. My God, this is the cry of of entire centuries of longing throughout the Bible, figures throughout the Bible. This is your cry and this is my cry. If I could only be the thing that my people value, the people that I admire, well, then I'll have made it and I'll be something. This is what sets Paul off. They've turned the worship gathering into a striving for position and power. And that striving for position and power and prestige displayed itself in the Lord's Supper. See, when they came together, they might have spoken about Jesus' coming kingdom with their words. But in their actions, 
They were completely undoing and making following Jesus a restless pursuit of striving. And the wealthy? Presumably the more educated here, the more who, who could understand, the, uh, the, the people who could really grasp things in this particular culture. They, they were completely missing it. And why is that? See, they were taking cues from the culture. This sort of thing was normal in Greco-Roman world. The wealthy ate the best. They invited the people who were like them to dine with them. And then the poor and the servants, they would just have to eat outside. You see, culture had informed their worship gathering. And that's why Paul says what they're, what they're doing is more harm than good. It's like the paintings stored in the basement of the Detroit Institute of Art. This worship gathering was worthless. So Paul in verses 23 through 26, he sets out. He sets out to help them once again understand the, the provenance, the origin, the, the history of what's going on in the Lord's Supper. It, it's significance. It's worth. See, most importantly, he wants them to see how the, Lord, how the Lord's Supper shapes them into a holy people. A people who are other together. They were once a people who were a, a long way off from God. But he, is, but, he, but he, in his love, has attached himself to them by their trusting in Jesus. And now they've become a different kind of other. They've become holy. God has made them holy and attached them to himself in relationship. So what Paul does is he then he goes back. He goes back and recalls to the Corinthians the events of the night Jesus was betrayed. See, he, he's trying to remind them of when Jesus told his disciples to physically remember the sacrifice he was getting ready to complete. So Paul goes back to those events of what Jesus told his disciples, but what Jesus is saying goes back even further to the events of the Old Testament. It's kind of like an inception moment, not an interception for you football fans who just have football in your brain, but inception as in the movie, okay? Paul reminds the Corinthian church of what Jesus said, but what Jesus said carried with it hundreds of years of God working out his plan to put to put them in relationship with him. So in the upper room, Paul tells them, Jesus took the bread, he thanked God for it, broke off a piece and said, this is my body. It's going to be broken for you in a similar way. I'm doing this for you. Remember it. Jesus, in this moment, is recalling Israel's salvation out of slavery. Their exodus from Egypt. Jesus is recalling the moment when the people were spared from death by God's angel. And then, then they had to pack up everything and go quickly. They were to remember every year through the Passover that God not only spared them, but he rescued them from slavery. Jesus was telling his disciples, look, now when you do this, when you break bread, remember, I am the rescue. The final rescue that you have longed for. All of Israel's longings have been satisfied in me. I'm going to free you from your slavery and from your sin. Then, he took the cup. After supper. Again, it's a full-on meal. No Jesus launchable here. This is a celebration. A feast. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Every time you do it, remember me. Jesus' language here fuses together Jeremiah 31, 31 and Exodus 24, 8. 
He says, look, I know you, you're longing for the days when I make a new covenant with you. My people broke the covenant numerous times, but I'm faithful. I'm going to keep it. And my blood that I'm going to spill is going to seal the deal. My death and sacrifice will pay for your sin and it's going to put you in a completely new relationship with God. This time you won't be able to break it because my sinless life will pay the full and complete price to attach you in relationship to God. Jesus is going all the way back trying to show his disciples that that he is completing once and for all time the restless pursuit of striving to be called blessed. I'm going to attach you to me and you'll have priceless love for yourself and forever. And every time you eat this meal, I want you to remember this. I want you to remember that this new covenant attaches you to me and it can't be undone no matter what. And that's the Paul that, that, and that's the problem that Paul's addressing. They don't remember. Furthermore, A covenant carries with it this theme of unity. The covenant binds a people together in relationship, in a community, in a family. You can't break yourself off from family. Sometimes as much as we want to. We can't. You can't do it. In the new covenant that Jesus died to give us, he he puts us in relationship with him. And then that covenant binds us together as a people, as a church. We're a family that takes everyone else into consideration. We're family who together seek to honor God and to put on the mind of Jesus, thinking about the other, thinking about one another as opposed to ourselves, thinking about how we were once an outsider, yearning for other outsiders to become insiders. And Paul says, this is a beauty. This is the beauty. This is the thing that I want you to see. I want you to remember. Now, in the word remember, it's important that we understand what that means. Does that mean like, oh, hmm, let me just briefly have a think about that. Yeah, that was something. Like you remember that time I jokingly told people if they didn't get into a community group, I was going to take them out into the alley and beat them. That was a joke. The joke didn't land. I've since learned I'm not a comedian. (laughs) Praise God, that was a different Jeremy, and I am so sorry, and thank you for being patient with me. Please continue to be patient with me. Like, it's, is it just remembering details from Jesus' life and thinking about the harshness of the cross and the fact that He was raised from the dead? Well, yes and no. It's kind of like when I'm away from my wife, Tori, for a couple of hours, days, hours, minutes. I just can't wait to be back in her presence. Really, I really do feel that way about my wife. I love spending time with my wife. When I go on a trip, I think of her. I, I remember the time that we've spent together, the joy that we've had together. Like, those are things. Like, I think about that when I'm away from her. I also think about the tough times that we've had together. And I celebrate the growth we've had. I think about the man that I want to be. I think about ways that I want to have certain uh, habits in my own home so that we can see, see God grow in us. I think about the future. I think about, man, I'm getting old. I'm going to soon be near retirement age. Like, when you get older, you, that, start, that line starts to get closer and closer. Being apart from her creates in these, these, uh, these reflection moments for me. I think about the past, and I also begin to think about the future. 
And this is the kind of remembering that Jesus wants us to do. When we remember him, he wants us to drag all the events of his life, death, resurrection. He wants us to, dream, to drag all that into the present so we can emotionally let, it, let its beauty settle on us. Let the extent to which God went to, to attaching us to him, to give us a, to, so that we can become a people of his. So that we can belong to and grow in. He wants us to remember that. But yet, he also wants us to drag the the events of his future coming, his resurrection, the shalom and peace of the new heaven and new earth, the the beauty of, of being in a world completely restored where there's no more cancer, no more abuse, no more racial injustice, no more longing to be valued. As Jacob said earlier, all sad things coming untrue. He wants us to drag all those things into the present, to do that in such a way that the, 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 the future and the past burst into the present. This remembering is a, is a moment and a life full of moments in which we call into account if we've actually set our hearts, minds, and bodies into action for Jesus. That is the kind of remembering that, he, that he's calling us to. A call to completely follow Jesus with our whole life. Your life then becomes a billboard of sorts on a highway leading to God's kingdom. The intent of a billboard, right? What's the intent of a billboard? It's to create this presence of something now. Like, you know, when you drive to Chattanooga and you see Rock City. I don't even know what Rock City is. But listen, they win because I'm talking about it right here. Don't be an annoying billboard like Rock City, okay? A billboard creates desire for something that's in the future. And that's what Paul is talking about here. When he talks about this remembering. When he talks about proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Because he will come. He will bring peace and new creation. This is what Paul says the Corinthians have forgotten. Verse 27, Paul tells them that that when they do the Lord's Supper. And have a worship gathering the way they've been doing it. The gathering becomes worthless. And they're guilty of sinning against God. And then in verse 30, the <clears throat> like most of 1 Corinthians, there's another thing that's, that's interesting to say the least, right? He tells them because they've been sinning against God and against one another by creating division in the church, that most likely some of the people who've, who've some of those people have gotten sick and died. Like what? No one really knows what this means. Because they've been mistreated the Lord's Supper, this probably explains why some people have gotten sick and died. Here's what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that if you don't have enough faith, that God won't heal you. That's been misused for a long time and it will probably continue to be misused. And I think our response to this verse in particular probably exposes in me and in you a low view of God. So we end up not seeing God as, a, as holy, as a person to be feared or, 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 to, or be revered. We tend to pull God down onto our level, right? When we see this, we're like, what? If I don't honor God, he's going to kill me or he's going to make me sick. You see, in that response, even in me, as I read that, it, it shows a pride in me. Rather than, rather than calling God into question about what he can say and do, the humble learner will say, just like Isaiah, oh dear God, 
I am not at all worthy of you. Thank you for attaching me to your family. Would you please help me to honor you with everything that I have? And that's exactly what Paul tells them to do. To examine themselves. Then in verse 28, it says, If you were properly judging or examining yourselves before you came into the worship gathering, you wouldn't receive the severe discipline of God. And when you do receive that kind of discipline, it's so that you're not condemned, so that you're not forever detached from God. Discipline is for your good. But Paul says, how about spending some time examining your motives and your actions before you come into the worship gathering? For God's sake and for the beauty of the church, check yourself before you wreck yourself. So what God has done to attach a people to Himself is way too beautiful to be wrecked by carelessness, by fear of the other people, by fear of the outsider, the power of the gospel to attach a people to one another who look nothing like one another, who have different amounts of money, position, prestige, is way too important to be cast aside. Cast aside for to be cast into something like a basement. Like the painting of the vase with carnations. A painting by none other than Vincent Van Gogh. Yep, hidden in that basement for over 20 years was a painting by Van Gogh. After curators dove into the provenance of this painting, they actually figured out that it was Van Gogh's. They had to peel back a couple layers of canvas off the back of the painting that had been covering the piece. And they saw what was indicative of all of Van Gogh's paintings. And this painting went from being worthless to priceless. What was the difference? Nothing about the painting has changed. The only thing that changed was how it was perceived. This is exactly what Paul has drawn the Corinthians to and to us to this morning. You mistreat one another, perhaps not aloud, in your hearts, in your minds. You consume your own stuff. You give your stuff to only those who can advance your interests. You see the church more as an opportunity for networking than family. You give in to fear of the other afraid to serve, the have-nots. You hoard your resources. And then you walk into the worship gathering ready to receive a word from God, but in all your intelligence, completely miss the fact that you overlooked the opportunity to serve multitudes of people who've crossed your paths during the week, to serve the people of this church. Dear God, please forgive us. Give us ears to hear this. See, the last thing I want for myself and for us as a church to make this worship gathering worthless I mean, what, we do that if we preach the gospel, yet treat other people like they never need the gospel or like we never needed the gospel. We say, I'm somebody. I've always known the things I've known. Your problem with budgeting or your problem with marriage or your problem with your kids or your problem with X is because, well, you're not like me. You don't know what I know. We forget that it is God's grace that has put us exactly where we are. We make this 
worthless. We make this gathering worthless. If I, as a pastor, give deference to people in the church who, have, who give more money to the church, or I give deference to the voices in the church who have more prestigious jobs, I would be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of Jesus and thereby making this gathering pointless. I push people away from God and to some other, to something other than actually trying to pursue God. I end up telling people, you know what your problem is, is that you need to be, you need to strive to make sure that you can say God has blessed you. I turn the gospel into a opportunity for striving rather than understanding that it is a gift of His grace. I pray that God's Spirit keeps us from that. You see, it's not this worship gathering or a particular style of worship that will ultimately capture your heart and keep you attached to God and His people. This is one One of many churches in this city who are filled with people and pastors who are earnestly seeking God and asking Him to reveal Himself and for His Spirit to move. Now I would say to you who who are looking for the the best and the greatest, look, if you, as the old saying goes, careful and find the perfect church because you're going to ruin it once you step inside. See, it's not what happens in this gathering or in the other gatherings across this church that needs to change. It's our perception of the worship gathering that needs to be changed. It's the perception of this people of this room. It's your perception, rather, of the people in this room that needs to be changed. This, this room is filled with people, and there are rooms all across this city who are filled, who, who are, that are filled right now worshiping Jesus. And listen, those people are created in God's image. City Church has, listen, City Church, you, th- th- we are not filled with a burdensome people who get down on us, who make us down and ruin our plans, who call us at the wrong moment to confess our sins, or at, at the wrong moment because we don't want to hear their mess, or we don't want to bestow grace upon Him. If that's the case, we've most definitely forgotten that we have ruined God's plans time and time and time and time again. Furthermore, it's your perception of God that needs to be changed. We have a God who's not only rescued us and attached us to Himself, but He's also entrusted to us His Holy Spirit to empower us to serve not only the people within this church, but listen, your neighbors, your coworkers, the poor and homeless that hang out right under that, show, that, that, that overhang right out there. I mean, that is if we don't fear them. See, that's part of the problem of right now living in this culture that we live in. See, we, get, we swallow hook, line, and sinker the, pre- the preaching of our favorite political party that says, well, if X group is, X group is dangerous and we give them power, they're going to destroy our life, they're going to destroy our city, they're going to destroy our country, they're going to destroy our world. If don't, don't vote for them. And the first time we hear someone say something that we think is attached to a particular social group or a political group, we, we file them in the people to fear folder. Dear God, we need our perception to be changed. The other has become the enemy and everything they say and do is directly from Satan himself. What Paul is trying to get the Corinthians and us to see is the reciprocal nature of the worship gathering. The nature that the worship gathering has on us and the nature that we have on the worship gathering. What God does in you will affect the nature of this church and these gatherings. That's no surprise to us all, right? 
Listen, I think what, how, what's going on, this is no surprise. This is the Word of God from itself. God says He wants us to examine ourselves. Not only in the morning. He wants us to continually examine ourselves, to, to establish a pattern, a habit of examination, lest we completely lose God and begin to take all our cues from culture. There's so much left in me that needs to be judged. There's so much about me. The, the, the more that I grow, that I understand, like, how did I not see that five years ago? That's atrocious. Listen, if I'd let God examine me regularly, the effect of that on my life and on this church is going to be noticeable. Will it not? What the Lord does in each of us individually has an effect on this worship gathering. This church, this church will go unchanged. If we don't let God examine us. And listen, that sounds like an absolutely dreadful existence. And I do not want to be a pastor of that church. Listen, our, our hearts, the pastors here at this church, we are, we deeply want each of you individually to deeply experience the presence of God and to be changed by that. And then watch what happens across our church and across the city. Conversely, if, if what we do in here looks nothing more than like the culture around us, it will have no power on us as individuals. It will be pointless. It will be worthless. If we make the comfortable more comfortable and we afflict the, more, the afflicted, we've lost. No, we seek to unleash the word of Jesus to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. It's a people together A people together, us together, who confess sin to one another and then comfort one another in the middle of brokenness that will most deeply affect the lives of individuals and outsiders as they then set foot in this building, as they set foot in our homes, as they set foot into your cubicles, as they set foot, as it were, into your Zoom meetings. It's your perception of each that will need to change. It's not other people who should start first. That's where we typically get it wrong. Well, if that person changes, my life will be just great. That's not, listen, it's, a, it's us. It's the, the work that the Lord needs to do in each of us first. Listen, you start doing that and you start to see how the Lord begins to change the people around you. For God's sake, here's another thing, right? This is actually in my notes. Can we sing like the gospel is actually beautiful? Can we sing like it actually matters? Can we sing like we actually long for new creation until He comes? I know some of you say, well, I just don't feel like it. Well, sing yourself into belief, as Jacob says. Dear Lord, how do you expect to get there if you don't, if you don't take in the beauty that God has given you, taking advantage of it? Listen, one thing I want to acknowledge, listen, right now, like I know, life is hard. It is hard. We're tired of politics. We're tired of COVID. We're tired of racial injustice and unrest. City Church, now is the time to step in and be a calm presence of Jesus. 
to take his easy burden and his light yoke. Listen, he'll be, he'll be tender with you as, he, as you take the steps of an action steps of remembering. And remembering takes hard work. And as you've heard already, I've interchangeably talked about the Lord's Supper and the worship gathering. And in Paul's mind and in the New Testament, they're really close to being one and the same. You can't seem to have one without the other. Here at City Church, we take the Lord's Supper or Jesus Snackable about every three weeks. And we've talked about, should we do that more regularly? And we're continuing to talk about that. And listen, the Bible gives us a lot of room to how to do that, how to do the worship gathering. And we're regularly asking and praying, Lord, how would you like us to reflect more of who you are in this worship gathering? So we continue to ask those questions. But just like you can wear a wedding band without ever being married or devoted to your spouse even, you can receive the Lord's Supper every day and still not be deeply changed by it or be deeply attached to Him. That's Paul's argument here. And yet, and yet I think the regular timing of the Lord's Supper is supposed to trigger for us the need to examine ourselves and for, so that we can desperately see where we need God's grace. To look deeply into ourselves and to say, have I truly remembered Jesus? Have I given Him complete control of my life? Really? Am I in service to Him or is He in service to me? The Lord's Supper has a significant power over us to to help us ask these questions. To help us have an appropriate posture. And that's why I think this should be done not only regularly here in the worship gathering, but in community groups. I'm not instituting this. This is just Jeremy's thoughts as he studied the scripture this week. In many ways, Lord, thank you, Lord, for the rain. Can we acknowledge it? It's loud in here. I take a nap. In many ways, this is already being done in community groups. At least pre-COVID, right? So how should this be done? Well, I think there's lots of room to put this into action. I mean, you could even, you could even put this into play like the Quakers do, uh, which is another um, a group of, of followers of Jesus. I mean, they see every opportunity for a meal as an opportunity to do this. There's many different traditions. I don't think anyone or, or anyone does it even any better than the other. So what does this look like in community group? Well, first of all, prepare yourself. Before you go to community group, before you come into worship, worship gathering, for that matter, prepare yourself. Ask the Lord to show you areas of your life where He's not reigning supreme. And then go to group. Whoever leads that group, take some bread, take a, a, a wafer, take a, um, I don't know, a tortilla, break it. Have a visible reminder of what Jesus calls us to visibly remember. And give thanks. Go to the table or various places in your group. And rather than talking about the weather or politics or sports, look one another in the eye and say, Hey, how have you failed the Lord this week? And then when they tell you, say, You know what? Here's God's grace. You've, you're forgiven. 
and you do the same. And then, after that meal, because you do this at the end, then you say, hey, let's make a toast all together, recalling Christ's death in our place, and let's long for His return together as a community. Do you see how doing this with the same people, week in, week out, year in, year out, can have a shaping effect on you? It's a people who come together to confess, to celebrate, to bless. And the City Church, I believe there's deep joy to be found in that. Listen, because of God's grace, He took us, a people who were other to Him, a people who were on the outside. He attached us to Him so that we could be with Him. He took us and made us holy and then placed us together for one another. So let's examine ourselves. Together, let's see the beauty of the pricelessness of what God has done for us. And let's remind one another of that because listen, we need to get out of the basement. Today, we're going to receive the Lord's Supper in just a moment. Here's how we do that. Normally, we do that together in groups uh, because of COVID. We don't, we, we're not doing that right now, but some of you have come together in groups. Or you're sitting in the same row with people. So I assume that those are people that you deem as um, well. Not safe, we're all safe. But people who you deem as well. For those of you participating online with your families. Those who are in the room with you. That's how I want us to do this. Like we normally do. Let's just practice this in a miniature fashion. Speak to one another. This is how I have not honored the Lord of my life. And I want to receive the blessing of His grace. If you're not a follower of Jesus, like I said, this is pointless. So we invite you right now to, to think about, think and ponder on, yearn for, ask God to show you how to see that what He has done for you is a beautiful thing that you have, don't have to strive anymore to be called blessed. So right now we're going to have a moment of silence for you to think about that. Um, I don't have one of those. Can someone grab? Jacob, can you bring me one of those up when you come? We'll have a moment of silence and then I will pray and then I will read scripture and we will receive the Lord's Supper together.